As Thanksgiving approaches, we are spending some time looking back at our heritage. As we compare ourselves to our founders, we see we have no reason to complain. Please join us to see if you are more like the pilgrims or the Israelites. We pray you are blessed as you join us in the message entitled, Thankful Hearts. Psalms 100. Verse 1, it says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that made, hath made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving. And into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures to all generations. I hope that computer's all right. (laughs) Something hit the floor. I didn't know if it was a spirit falling on us or (laughs) somebody's laptop just hit the floor. Let's pray. Father. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you that it is always a a word that is for now. It's a now word, Lord. And God, you said that you would come in the very hour, Lord, and teach us the things that we ought to say, the things that we know. Lord, I thank you this morning that the Holy Spirit is here to be our instructor and our teacher. And, Lord, we can just depend on you, God. Throughout the ages, Lord, your people have followed your steps, God. Lord, your word just told us that you're our shepherd, God, and we're your sheep. We're your people and that we are in your pasture. And Lord, I believe today that we are in your pasture, Lord, right where you've led us. And God, I pray that you just reveal that truth to us today in such a tangible way, God, that we will know beyond any doubt, Lord, who we are, where we are, and that's where we're supposed to be. And we're doing what we're supposed to do. So, Father, I pray that you reveal that to our hearts today. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Uh, Let's break this down and look at it again. He said, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. That sounds to me like everybody that knows Him. Well, actually, the whole world. The Bible says that the the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to Him. In fact, man was created to have a relationship with God. That's why He created us. And when God created Adam in the garden, he came down and walked with him in the cool of the evening. Because that's why he wants us to know him, is to have a relationship with him. And so therefore, if all mankind was created by God to have a relationship with God, then we should all be praising God. So he says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all ye lands. And I notice something else when I read that. He didn't just say make a joyful noise when everything is going good. That's right. In fact, he didn't stipulate what's going on in your life. He just said, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Then verse 2, he says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. And when I read that again, I think, you know, there are times in my life that I can come before him and I'm glad. Because the opposite of glad is sad. All right. Sometimes I'm sad. Sometimes I'm glad. And when I'm glad, it's easy to serve God. It's easy to come before his presence with singing when I'm glad. Now, I'm a happy kind of guy, 
And sometimes I'll just sing songs. Yesterday we were out hunting, and man, this song just kept rolling around in my head. And I know I probably scared everything in the woods away, but I didn't care. I'm singing, you know, because I'm making a joyful noise unto the Lord because I felt like it. And if I see something fine, if I don't, I don't care. I just wanted to sing the Lord because I was happy doing something that was fun to do. But sometimes I don't feel happy. Sometimes I don't have gladness. Sometimes I'm sad. And so, he again, he doesn't stipulate whether you feel good or whether things are going right or not. He said, come before his presence with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. And verse 3 is the one that really got me. Because as Christians, we need to know that He is God. You're not God. In case you're wondering. Look at your neighbor. Say, neighbor. neighbor. <laughs> you're not God. You didn't make yourself. Know that He is God. And it is He that hath made us. And not we ourselves. It doesn't matter if you're short, if you're tall, if you're skinny, if you're not skinny. What is a perfect person anyway? Who decided what perfect was? You remember when Adam was in the garden and God said that he created man and he created woman? What did they look like? Now, we got the feeling that they look like Barbie and Ken. Huh? But they might have looked like Fat Albert and Shanene. Hey, hey, hey. So what is perfect anyway? God made you. And He made you the way He wanted you. And when we don't like ourselves and we got to go change this and change that, we're basically saying, God, you didn't, you make me right. And I, that doesn't mean we just shouldn't take care of ourselves. We should. But it's God that made you, not you yourself. And says that we are His people and the sheep of His pastor. Therefore, we should enter into His courts with thanksgiving. Now, we're in Thanksgiving week, and that's one reason I'm kind of on this, because in a minute we're going to look at our forefathers and the attitude that they came here with. And the more I look into it, the more I am impressed with these people. A few weeks ago, I talked about the Navy SEALs and what they went through to become a Navy SEAL. You know, they go through weeks of training, and then finally they go through Hell Week. How many of you were here for that message? Surviving Hell Week was the title of the message. And as I began to study a little bit more on the Puritans coming to America, I thought, brother, the Navy SEALs ain't got nothing on these people. Because 102 people set sail in early September from Holland to come here. 102 people. On the deck of a ship in the winter. Winter's coming on. It's late fall or early fall, but winter's coming on. And they're on the deck of a ship 30 feet wide and 60 feet long. That's about from here to that back wall and about this wide for 66 days at sea. Everything they do, they've got to do right there with each other. The other week I preached about getting out of the boat. 
The disciples in the boat, remember, and they're all crowded, and you're bumping up against me, and she stood beside me and didn't even speak to me. And... But imagine being 66 days with your church family doing this, seasickness, somebody just right beside of you, and, you, and I mean, there's things you have to do in a 66-day period. And when they got to Plymouth, it was November the 11th, 1620. Now, that's Plymouth, Massachusetts, all right? Jeannie and I lived in Connecticut for 22 very long months. And let me tell you something about Connecticut. It's cold up there, brother. And I'm telling you, we don't know cold. When the gasoline in your car freezes, it's cold. When you got ice on the inside of your front door, it's cold. And Massachusetts is further north than Connecticut. And here they show up, blown off course. They were headed to Jamestown where they were going to be greeted by people that had houses and heat and a church and food. And they were blown off course and landed in Plymouth, where there was nothing but an abandoned Indian village that had died who were previously murderers. I mean, for good reason. I'm not condemning that. But God was... Listen, God went before them. I believe that. I believe that. Do you believe that? And so here they are landing at Plymouth with no provision waiting for them. No society. No, they didn't have no welfare. They didn't even have a Cracker Barrel. No Medicare. 102 people. And before the winter's end, 53 of them are all that survived. Now, this is the memoirs of William Bradford, who was the governor. These are the original memoirs uh, of, of William Bradford, who was the governor of Plymouth for 30, 33 years. And this is what he said about This is an old English writing, okay, so bear with me. But that which was most sad and lamentous was that in two or three months' time, half of the company died, especially in January and February. You've got to understand, it is cold there. And they're inside of a little make, because when they got there, winter's already setting in. And they got to build some kind of shelter. They got to cut firewood. They got to get their supplies there and survive the winter. And so in February and January, over half of them died, being uh, ye depth of winter and wanting house and other comforts, being infected with ye scurvy and other diseases, which this long voyage, their inaccommodate conditions had brought upon them. So as there died some two or three a day in this aforesaid uh, time, that of a hundred and odd persons, scarce fifty remained. And of these, in the times of the most distress, and there but was but six or seven sound persons, who, to their great accommodations, be it spoken, spared no pains night or day, but with abundance of toil and hazard of their own health, fetched the wood, made them fires, dressed them meat, made their beds, washed their loathsome clothes, clothed and unclothed them, 
in a word, did all ye humbly and necessary offices for them which dainty and queasy stomachs cannot endure to be named. And all this, now get this, willingly and cheerfully, without any grudging, in ye least. Showing herein their true love unto their friends and brethren, a rare example and worthy to be remembered. Now, as I thought about this, you've got 102 people. Sometimes they're dying two to three people per day. You've got six or seven people tending to 100 people. Now, my mother-in-law, she's in the nursing home, and she requires 24-hour care. And there's a lot of people in there that are in the same condition. And while their minds, in some cases, are, are gone, in some cases their minds are still here, but their body is failing them, and there's really nothing that they can do about it. And if you've ever been in an environment like that, and you see people that they can't help themselves, they're beyond helping themselves, it can be some pretty gross things that you have to do for them. Now, understand there were six or seven people tending to a hundred people throughout the whole winter. And when they started dying two or three a day, they're take, I don't even know what they did with them because the ground's frozen. They can't bury them. Not only that, they've got to cut firewood. They've got to fix meat. They've got to clean up all of the stuff in this little shelter that they've built. And they did it without complaining. Folks, that says something about our, our ancestors that came here. Because when I look at an, another illustration of people that were God's people, they were the sheep of His pasture, led by God, I see an entirely different attitude. Because I see a people that is bound in Egypt. They're under oppression, just like our forefathers were under oppression in England. They escaped England to go to Holland to get away from the oppression because they couldn't worship God. They were being imprisoned and sometimes killed. So they ran to Holland and escaped there and eventually came to America for, uh, to seek freedom of religion, the freedom to worship God the way that they wanted to. So they were led by God, I believe, here. The children of Israel were led by God out of Egypt. And when they were led by God out of Egypt... Folks, they had it pretty good. I mean, God did great signs and wonders, first of all, to get Pharaoh to let them go. I mean, it was pretty obvious God was on their side. You know, the last thing he did was told them to take the lamb and cut his throat, put the blood over the doorpost and and on on the lintel, so that the deaf angel will pass you by. But, folks, it doesn't matter if you're saved, if you're not liberated. I heard a message on that the other day. Because if, if our ancestors would have, they were all saved, if they had stayed in England, the church would have probably just passed away. But these people, William Brewster uh, was, was their pastor that went with them. William Robinson was the pastor there in England. And he was kicked out of the Church of England because he didn't want to wear the priestly vestures. He didn't like wearing a suit and tie. I like that guy. <laughs> he liked to dress a little different, I guess. And so anyway, he pastored them there. And then William Brewster, just to show you how God works in ways that you don't see. See, we think God's supposed to bless us and we're supposed to just have everything going good all the time if you're a Christian. 
But when he was a young teenager, he fell ill and was bedridden. And read the Word of God continuously. So that he could see the unscriptural conduct of the Church of England. And therefore, as a young teenager, he decided to leave the Church of England as a teenager. Because he read the Bible. Because just a few hundred years before that, William Tyndale and John uh, Wycliffe and others translated the, the Latin Vulgate into a language that he could read. You see how God just orchestrates these things and brings them to pass for greater good. And so he's reading the Bible and sees that the Church of England is not doing what they're supposed to do. He pulls out and comes to America to establish a church at Plymouth. And this is what they said about that. First of all, they, they saw how their teenager, their kids were turning out. I say teenagers, they were their children. They saw how their children were turning out, and it says, Many of their children, by these occasions, and you great lasciviousness of youth, that means going out and partying. The word lascivious means having no restraints. If you want to do it, just do it. If it feels good, do it. It's okay. Everybody's doing it anyway. That's what lasciviousness means. So they're seeing the lasciviousness of youth. In ye countries, and ye manifold temptations of the place were drawn away by evil examples into extravagance and dangerous courses, getting ye reins off their necks and departing from their parents. Some became, well, let's see, that talks about the courses that they took and where they went in life. Um, tending to um, desoluteness and the dangers of their souls, to ye great grief of their parents and dishonor of God. So that they saw their posterity would be in danger and degenerate and be corrupted. In other words, they knew that if we stay here, we're going to lose the next generation. They're being drawn away by the world. And we have to plant a church that will show them the right way to go. And the influence is so great here that we can't combat that. We've got to get out of here. Lastly, and which was not least, a great hope in zeal that they of laying some good foundation. Yeah. Understand, they came here to lay a foundation upon which we are still building. Or at least to make some way thereto for ye propagating and advancing ye gospel of ye kingdom of Christ in these remote parts of ye world. Yea, though they should be but even a stepping stone unto others for ye performing of so great a work. In other words, there's like, I don't know how much good we can do, but I'm willing to sacrifice everything to be a stepping stone for those who will do even a greater work to build the kingdom of Christ. And we ought to have the highest level of respect for these people. Yes. And remember what they did. Yes. These and some other like reasons, some of the same reasons, moved them to undertake this resolution of their removal, the which they afterward prosecuted with so great difficulties as by the sequel which will appear. The place they had thought on was some of those vast and unpeopled countries of America. 
which were fruitful and fit for habitation, being devoid of civil inhabitants. They were only inhabited by savage and brutish men, which ranged up and down, little likewise, and you wild beasts of the same. So what they were saying is this. We're going to move to save the next generation, to lay a foundation, and to be a stepping stone for those who will come after us to build something great. I see the same thing in the children of Israel, led by God. He brought them out with great signs and wonders. The Red Sea parted. And when they got on the other side, the Bible says that the sea caved in and it killed Pharaoh and all of his army. And when good things happened, they got happy. They could serve the Lord with gladness because the whole army just got defeated. So Miriam and the, all the women, they grabbed their tambourines and they started dancing and praising and singing, singing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. The Lord our God, our strength, our shield, he has become our victory. And so they're dancing and singing and praising God. I see the same scene when the pilgrims who had traveled for 66 days on a 30 by 60 deck of a ship, 102 people, knelt down on the shores of Plymouth and gave praise to God for their deliverance. Only they didn't see all these great signs and wonders. They've got a hard winter facing them. But everything that they did, they did cheerfully and willingly without grudging, without complaining. The children of Israel? <laughs> Three days after the beach celebration, all right? The beach party. <laughs> They're in the wilderness and they got no water. And what did they do? They started looking back at Egypt. We were better off in Egypt. One thing about the pilgrims, they never, ever, ever did. They never looked back at England and said, we were better off in England. Two and three people dying a day. Scurvy. I'm telling you folks, this is, this is a horrible way to die. You're starving. You're trying to eat something. You can't keep it down. You're just, you're churning. Anybody, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever had the flu, all right, just think of the flu never ending. And you finally die from it. I mean, it's a horrible way to die. They never complained. Never looked back and said, we were better off in England. We should have never left. We had it. Yeah, we were oppressed over there, but it was better over there. The children of Israel, they're making bricks all day long, every day, every day, seven days a week. And they're looking back and saying, we're better off just because they don't have a little water to drink. Then God does another miracle. He brings, He strikes the, the rock, water comes out, and they're like, Woo, time to party again. I'll serve the Lord with gladness now. <laughs> Everything is going good. Not only that, but they get up every morning, don't even have to work. Their shoes didn't even wear out. Walk out every morning and pick up your food. Manna, a bread cake prepared by God Himself just for you. And they're like, whoo, boy, this is good stuff. Hmm, don't have to work for it. Just got to go out and pick it up. This is all right. Next day, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. Well, if it's the only thing we got. And pretty soon, can't we have some meat? And the Bible says that they lusted for the flesh pots of Egypt. Because it wasn't going the way they thought it ought to go. And so when I look at these two examples of people that were led by God, that were His people, 
the sheep of his pasture. One, I believe, is an example that we can follow, even though it's not biblical. It is certainly our Christian heritage. It's our history. The other one is clearly biblical. And God judged the children of Israel because of their murmuring and complaining over and over and over all throughout their history. And then I look at myself. And I ask myself, which one would I be most compared to? And I look at what God has called us to do here. And many churches just like this. When you see things that are clearly unscriptural being taught in the church. You see people in the church, although they have a form of godliness, the Bible says, they deny the power thereof. From such turn away, the Bible says. And so God begins to stir something in your heart. It's time for you to build a foundation. And lay a work and become a stepping stone that others can build on to build a great work. And to accomplish the great work of establishing the kingdom of Christ in this world. And so you move out in obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit and you plant that work. Now, we could not begin to compare what we've gone through to what the pilgrims went through by any stretch of the imagination. Which if we'd gone through that, we could kind of understand maybe a murmuring and complaining here or there. But when things really haven't been so bad and I complain. Who am I most like in those two illustrations? And so I have to look at where I am and say, do I really, really, really know that he is God and that he has made me and I didn't make myself, that I am his child, I'm his people, and I am the sheep of his pasture. In other words, I'm not in somebody else's pasture. I'm in his pasture. And if I really followed him and he really did lead me, then I am exactly where I ought to be doing exactly what I ought to be doing. See, the children of Israel was exactly where they were supposed to be doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing and complaining about it. The pilgrims were exactly where they were supposed to be doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing, but they did not complain about it. They came before his presence with gladness. They came before him joyfully with singing. That amazes me and it convicts me to do the same. There was one other thing I wanted to read in here. It's the last time I'll read because I'm not going to read the whole book. You ought to spend a little money and get one of these. This is a great book on Christian history. And it's it's my kind of book because it goes right to the point. Uh, It cuts out all the birds and the Tweety birds and the wind was blowing and all that stuff, you know. Stuff I hate. This is the end of the memoirs. Uh, of William. Uh, what did I say his name was? Uh, Bradford. William Bradford. The governor. I do earnestly. Let's see. Where do I want to go? Lastly, whereas. I'm sorry here. 
still with me? Okay. Oh, that's good. Uh, but also, in yielding unto them all due honor and obedience in their lawful administration, not beholding to them the ordinances of the persons, but God ordained us for your good. And it didn't sound like it was good what they were going through. But they saw it as good. Not being like ye foolish multitudes who more honor ye gay coats than either ye vestures mine. He's reading the end of a scripture there. I do earnest, this is the next paragraph. I do earnestly commend unto your care and conscience, joying therein my daily intercession prayer unto the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I have joy in the Lord every day. And he was one of them that was sick. That's writing this. He wrote this in 1647, 27 years after this. This is his records of these events. An intercessor prayer unto the Lord. Yet he who hath made ye heavens and ye earth, ye seas and all rivers and waters, and whose providence is over all his works, especially over all his dear children, for good, who so guide and guard you in your ways. So what he's saying is that is simply this. Everything we went through, God guided us and directed us through that. So we have to, we have to come to a point to where we, we say, Lord, if, I really, if you really are God, and this is kind of the, the place that the Lord took me in this, is, is Psalms 100 verse 3. He says, the, you need to know that the Lord is God and He has made me and not, I didn't make myself, that I'm His people, I'm the sheep of His pasture. Therefore, I should enter into His gates with thanksgiving. Well, you say, well, when should I enter His gates with thanksgiving? Psalms 134 says this. It says that we are to rejoice in the Lord Always, I think that's what it says. Let me read it. Bless the Lord at all times. That's what it is. Bless the Lord at all times. Well, it was Paul that said rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But bless the Lord at all times. So, I guess what I'm getting at is I've seen throughout my lifetime comparisons of people who were like these Puritans. No matter what came their way, they seemed to have the joy of the Lord in their heart. And I ask myself, did they know that it was God that made them? Did they know that it was God that directed them? That they were exactly where they were supposed to be, doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing? And there were other people that all they do is murmur and complain. Over th- not because people are dying two or three a day, and they're having to tend to a hundred people with scurvy and other diseases. No, they're complaining because somebody didn't shake their hand at church. Or they didn't ask me to serve on that committee. or I mean, just stuff. And you wonder, is that what these pilgrims sacrificed for, really? I don't think so. Now, I'm not saying that that goes on here. Thank God it doesn't. Now, we've had a few complainers. You know, and we just let God deal with that. And He usually deals with it. And they repent and... Hopefully they don't complain anymore. Sometimes they do. Sometimes I do. Amen? But are you God's people? Do you know that? Are you His sheep? Do you know that? Are you in His pasture? 
So then we should rejoice. Come before his gates with thanksgiving. You know, I'm going to close with this. When we look at their history, it's amazing to see the providence of God. First of all, this entire village, I mean, there was a whole civilization that thrived here in Plymouth. The Patoxic Indians. They all died, except for one who had been taken captive, Squanto, who learned English, came back, lived with the Wampanoag Indians, which were a civil tribe and peaceful, that were neighbors. None of the Indians would come there. They thought were evil spirits there because that whole tribe died out. So they just happened to land on this vacant property that nobody wants to have. Fields are cleared, ready for planting, and they just happened to blow in there. I don't think so. And so when they get out, Squanto shows up in the spring. After they survive the winter, there's 53 of them left. Squanto shows up and shows them how to plant corn and put the fish in. And we know that from, I hope they still teach that in school. Do they still teach that in school? They don't. About Squanto, the Indian, teaching them to put fish in the hole so that the corn would grow. Y'all didn't learn that in school, really. Oh, man, we need to start a school. God help us. How many learned that in school? They taught them how to dig the trenches and put the seed in and put a fish in with it so the corn would grow. Taught them how to hunt deer. I came in this morning and two or three people saw them about their deer hunt yesterday. And I wondered about that. I wondered if the pilgrims got up and says, man, I was standing in this big buck came out. My heart was... Or they were just glad they had something to eat, you know. I just wondered about that. I wonder if they were excited about telling about their hunt. And, you know, you got to watch because they'll do this and they'll do that. And they winded me and they I don't know. But anyway, he taught them how to do that. And so they survived 1621 and had what we know as the first Thanksgiving. Uh, Chief Ma, 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 help me pronounce it, Masuit, Masuit. We'll just call it Masuit. Showed up with 90 braves. And they ate a whole lot of food, but they contributed to it. And at the end of 1621, they started taking inventory of their food and realized, we don't have enough to get through the winter again. Well, they ate up all their supplies they brought with them. We don't have enough to get through the winter. We've got to cut our meager rations in half. Not only that, but another ship, the Fortune, came in with 35 new people and no provision. So now they've got 80-some people. They've got to feed through the winter with half their supplies. So by the spring of 1622, they got nothing left. All of their food is gone. And so they, they, they go, and the only ship that they got, they go up and down the coast, beg, borrowing, and stealing everything. They think, well, not stealing, but begging and borrowing and bartering for everything that they can get to survive the winter of 1622. And they do survive. But by the time, and shellfish, they ate a lot of clams and shellfish, things that they could find. They couldn't fish because they didn't have any nets. And the cod that is so famous in that area, they couldn't catch them because they didn't have nets. Well, by 1623, they had their ship rigged for fishing. It stayed at sea all the time, catching fish, bringing it in. 1623, they had a drought in June that lasted for a whole month. Their corn and all their crop is dying. In July, they had a fast of a day of fasting and humility and prayed. The next day, it started raining and rained for two weeks. They brought in the biggest crop they ever had. But before all that happened, and this is I'm going to close with this, 
The only thing they had to eat were five kernels of corn. And I taught them this a few years ago at Thanksgiving. Your daily ration, all you had to eat today was five kernels of corn. Tomorrow you get five more. The next day you get five more. And so that year when they brought in the harvest, see, they didn't call it a Thanksgiving. It was a harvest celebration, which they had always done in England and other places. It was a part of their culture. They brought in the harvest. They had a harvest celebration. It was also a culture that the Indians also celebrated. They all came together, but before they ate the Thanksgiving or the harvest celebration that day, they laid out five kernels of corn beside their plate just to remember and to be thankful for what God had brought them from. You know, there's nothing wrong with us looking back and remembering what God has done in our life. Because sometimes, if you ever had, I know you've had a stomach ache or a headache or you hit your thumb or something. And brother, while it's hurting, there's nothing else on your mind but that. But how many of you can sit here right now and remember what that was like? See, it's hard to look back and remember those things when you're not going through them. Right? Because when it's over, you kind of forget that. I don't think we should forget. I think we should, because you don't know how good you feel till you feel bad and feel good again, you know. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so I think they did that on purpose. So we don't need to forget the price and the sacrifice that we have made. So I've said all that to say this. If you are God's people, you're his sheep. You're led by him. You're in his pasture. There may be some sacrifices ahead for you. Serving God is not always fun. As we can see in what the pilgrims did. They were serving God. They were ordained by God to do what they did and go through what they went through. Now, that's not our concept of Christianity or what God would require of someone to do. We don't kind of, it doesn't register in our mind that God would have you go through things like that. And I know that's contrary teaching in some churches because God don't call people to suffer. Well, excuse me. Apparently they don't read the Bible. Because sometimes some really things go on that I can't explain that God is in it. Because He's laying a foundation and a stepping stone for something else and the thing is, is are we willing to sacrifice yeah. and be the person that goes through that so that people like us can enjoy what they did? Because yeah. today, folks, we're enjoying the harvest of their labor. Yeah. I thank God today we don't have to go through what they went through. We got padded seats and air conditions, drove an air conditioner, a heated automobile to church. <laughs> didn't have to walk, didn't have to ride a horse and buggy. We got it made. Is there ever a time we have a right to complain? And I'm not saying this because somebody's complaining. If you're complaining, I don't know about it. God does. You better quit. Because He's going to get you. I haven't seen it before. I see it in my own life. I see it in the Bible. He don't like that. I remember this one preacher said he was going through some rough times. And he said, God said, you need to praise God. He said, I don't want to praise God. Holy Spirit said, Father likes it when you praise Him. He said, well, I didn't feel like praising Him, but I got Him. He says, all right. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. I bless you, Lord. Glory to God. 
I was singing the song this morning. What was it? I will praise the Lord. I don't remember what it was, but you know, I was singing this morning. I was praising the Lord, thinking about that. Praise the Lord. He said, all of a sudden, man, the Holy Spirit came on him. He's like, "Woo! Father does like that. <laughs> well, sometimes it's like that, folks. Things may not go the way we think Christianity ought to go. But God likes it when you praise Him. Amen. Amen. Come before His presence with thanksgiving. Amen. Serve the Lord with gladness. Amen. We shouldn't be unthankful. We shouldn't be sorrowful. We shouldn't be sad. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet for just a minute? The board members going at the front. My granddaughter asked me, when are y'all going to serve those snacks, Peppy? <laughs> the mind of a child. You need to go get my granddaughter. I told her I'd serve her snacks at the end of the service today. Okay. She thinks the convenience is cookies and Kool-Aid. I'm wearing a coat, but is it as hot in here as must be the fire of the Holy Ghost or something. I feel like T.D. Jakes, man. We're burning the handkerchief. I need to wipe my sweat. Praise God. Where's everybody at? I'm going to need some help. Up oh, that's right. He's joking. Oh, if you got a free arm there, brother, you can help me. Okay. Come on, come on up, brother. Uh, Rob, won't you give me a hand this morning, if you would, please? Tim? Would you give me a hand, please? I see. Oh, wait a minute. I need. That's right. Rob, come on. Joe, you just keep your place here. Tim, come on. Praise the Lord. You say, well, what is the pro? Y'all can have a seat if you want to. I'm going to let you out of here in just a minute. What is the protocol for communion? Did you know that you can serve communion in your own house anytime? They came together daily and break bread. Man, the Lord just gave me something else there. No, I'm not going to do that. they're handing that out I just I, the Lord just quickened this to my mind and he showed it to me this morning Psalm 75 says unto thee O God do we give thanks unto thee do we give thanks for that thy name is near thy wondrous works declare when I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. I bear up the pillars of it. Selah. I said unto the fools, deal not foolishly. And to the wicked, lift not up the horn. That means don't be boasting. So we read in Psalms, He's God. He's God. 
He made us. What are we bragging about? He said, don't lift up your horn. Don't lift up your boasting. Lift not up your horn on high. Speak not with a stiff neck. For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. As I read, I was like, Lord, why did you quicken that to my spirit? See, some people, God does miraculous things in their lives. And other people, it seems like nothing is ever easy. But God's the God of them both. He sets up one and he doesn't set up the other. I mean, God made you the way he made you. He set up one put and set up up and set up. He puts down one, set up up another. This is the verse that really got me, though. Verse 8, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture. And he poureth out of the same, but the dredges thereof. All the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises unto God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked also will I cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. As I read, I was like, Lord, why, why did you show me that? And the Lord says, the wine is representative of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit in our life. And he said he's holding a cup in his hand and there's wine in it and it's red. But there's all kind of dredge in the bottom. The dredge is what's left over when they would crush the grapes and crush the fruit of the vine, whatever. And they would save the juice on the top. The dredge was all the hulls and the seeds and and the dirt off of their feet and just all the nasty stuff in the bottom. That's the dredges. And he says the wine is not pure. That's what he's saying. It's impure because there's dredges in it. And the dredges represents the wickedness that is mixed in the wine. And he says, now I'm going to pour out the pure wine. But the dredges, the wicked going to have to drink that. In other words, he's saying we have to answer for the mixture in our life. And so I don't really know how that ties into what God is having me share this morning about the comparison between the children of Israel and their complaining versus our Puritan forefathers who didn't complain. Except that one seems to me to be the pure wine that God is really looking for. The other was the mixture that God always judges and so when I go before God, I'm like, Lord, and I pray this all the time. I say, God, search my heart. Search my heart, God. And see if there be any wicked thing in me. And create in me a clean heart, God. Renew a right spirit in me. I don't pray that daily, but maybe weekly. Like God, create a clean spirit in me. Create a root. Re- 
a right spirit in me. Search my heart, God. See if there's any wicked thing in me. And what they're saying is like, he doesn't have to search it to see if it's there. He knows it's there. Saying, search it and show it to me. Show it to me, God. Because I don't want something wicked in me. I don't want mixture in my wine. I want it to be pure. says that the day he's betrayed he took bread and he broke it and said this is my body which is broken for you wow the things that Christians and, and the whole Christian world and the experience has to go through Lord sometimes it doesn't really make sense to our thinking but Father help us this morning just to rest in you and to know God that you have a purpose and a plan And, Lord, you're working those things out in our life. You had a purpose and a plan when Jesus came, when his body was broken, when he hung on a tree. His body was broken for me. And today, God, we thank you, Lord, that somehow you saw fit for us to be a part of that great kingdom. We were privileged to hear the gospel message. Our hearts were touched and moved to receive it, God. And I pray this morning, Lord, if there's a single person here today that is outside of that relationship they don't know you God they're not ready to meet you if they were to die today and stand before you they would not be ready to be accepted by you may through this message today and this experience they make things right with you and become a part of your great plan and receive what you provided through the brokenness of your body in Jesus name